Good morning, church. Our scripture reading this morning will come from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Inside of your outline, or excuse me, inside of your announcement sheet, you're going to find an outline that you can use as we go through this message this morning. While you're doing that, a set of keys were handed to me uh, to a Buick. There is a Shirts Family YMCA card on it, um, CVS card. There's a little cross that looks like this. And uh, if this belongs to you, is that yours? Oh, is this Brad's? In front of everybody, come get your keys, brother. (laughs) I don't know what to say, except let's pray. Uh, Before we do that, though, just uh, one piece of fantastic news. Uh, Just about the last announcement I gave this morning had to do with the Taiwan uh, trips that are going in July and uh, later in the fall in September. And before I even got down off of the pulpit, uh, the, the stage this morning, the trip in July was fully funded. So that is a fantastic thing. Thank you, Ethan, for reminding us that God loves a cheerful giver. We're still needing some funds for the, uh, for the trip in September. And whatever you gave today to go towards July, we'll, we'll pass that on to September. But thank you so much, church, for not just being generous, but being generous in, a, in, in, in the giving of your money that will enable people to hear the gospel, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for all of the ways that You take care of us, uh, for this rain that has come so mightily upon us. It reminds us that Your power is not uh, feeble, it's not weak, but it is mighty. We can't make water. As technologically advanced as we are, we cannot make water. Father, only You can do that. And You're the one that has provided it. Thank You for this this gift that not only replenishes the soil, but reminds us that You are a mighty Creator God. And as we we think about the Gospel this morning, Father, as Paul writes about it in in Romans chapter 12, we pray, Father, to be transformed, to be be so revolutionized in the way that, that we live our life that people are able to see the Christ in us in all of His love and compassion and mercy. We pray this to be so, Father, with all of our might. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Think um, for a moment of all the things that Paul experienced in his ministry as he was going uh, around the known world at the time, preaching the gospel, planting churches, uh, writing letters, all of these kinds of things. Think about all of the things that Paul experienced in his ministry that were hardships. Now, that would be a long list, and we don't have really all the time to go through that. Maybe we should just take 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as, as kind of the short list of the things that Paul was willing to go through and, and to have you know, uh, his, his life uh, uh, experience as he, as he went about doing God's will in the kingdom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that he was frequently, not once or twice, but frequently was in prison. He was severely flogged. He was exposed to the possibility of death again and again and again and again. He received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews, not once, but five different times. He was beaten with rods three times. The NIV has kind of uh, softened the language a little bit. It says that he was pelted with stones, which is, is sort of a wishful, euphemistic way of saying that there were people that were trying to stone him to death. Shipwrecked three times, a night and a day in the open sea. He writes that he was always on the move, which means that he was never able to put down roots really any place in all of his life. Danger from rivers, dangers from bandits, many times going without food, going without sleep, going without water for a message. For a message. It's just a question we have to ask. Why did you do it, Paul? Why did, why, why did you go through all of the floggings and the beatings and all of the dangers and all of the, the, the experiences with, with uh, people trying to take your life? Why did you do it? And the answer, answer is very simple. It's the Gospel. For Paul, the Gospel is everything. For Paul, the Gospel is everything. The solution to injustice in the world between the races and the classes and the sexes is the Gospel. Every problem in the ancient world and in the modern world is answered in the Gospel because the answer to all of these issues begin with being reunited with God as His children. The issues that separate humans from God and put the world in crisis have been so thoroughly dealt with in Christ Jesus that there's now nothing that separates us from the love of God. And so for Paul, the Gospel is not just everything, but the Gospel changes everything. And as Paul thinks and writes and writes and thinks about the Gospel, he is overcome with worship and awe and wonder and humility and reverence, and praise, and love. And by the time he gets to the end of the 11th chapter, he just is overcome with worship. And he writes, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from Him and through Him and for Him are what? All things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.
And that's how Paul kind of culminates the first half of the book of Romans. And just thinking about what the gospel is all about, he just cannot help but praise God for the greatness of the impact and and what the, the gospel means for him. He's willing to go through all of these things, not just because he has... He has been the recipient of it because he understands just how great the blessing is. He's willing to go through that, not only to bring honor to God, but that other people might have that same blessing. The same experience of God. You know, back in the, the early 1900s, as liberal theology was beginning to take over Western Europe, a fellow by the name of Karl Barth wrote a, a landmark commentary on Romans. And in the opening chapters of chapter 12, in that commentary, he says, you know what happens when you begin to understand, you begin to realize what it is that the gospel does to human beings. It becomes the great disturbance in your life. And what he meant by that, especially in light of a World War One and a World War Two, is that when you begin to understand and embrace and absorb into every fiber of your being the message of the gospel... It is the disturbance, the great disturbance is to the status quo of life. How? Well, in the remaining chapters of Romans that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, one of the things that Paul underscores is that the gospel changes our relationship with God. It changes our relationship with each other in the church. And not only that, it changes our relationship with all human beings It changes our relationship as citizens to the state. It changes how we handle disputes. And it changes how we handle weaknesses and failings in other people. What we want to look at this morning is that very first one, though. How it brings a change in our relationship with God. That's what he begins with in this practical section of Romans. And he starts with these words, verse 1. In fact, the only verse we're going to look at this morning. He writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's what? Mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take that one verse and we're going to start at the end and work our way to the beginning. And we're going to see three things in this text. We're going to see the logical response to the gospel. Because of the gospel, there is a scope in our worship. And then because of the gospel, there is a right motivation to worship God. So it's a response, a logical response, a scope of worship, and the right motivation. Let's begin with the first one, the logical response. Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. I want you to circle on your outlines those words, true and proper. One of the really curious things, interesting things about the original language here is that this Greek word true and proper, it's actually one word. We use two words to, um, to translate it. It's actually the word logikon, which is the adjectival form of the word that gives us in English the word logic. Now what Paul is saying is that when you think about the implications and the ramifications of the gospel, Every day you meditate upon that. You contemplate what it means to be saved. You experience through the Spirit what it means to be a son of God and be able to say, Abba, Father, to Him. When you think about all of that that pertains to the Gospel, there is only one logical thing to do. And that's to worship God. Now that makes sense. I mean, that's what He did at the end of chapter 11, right? When He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. To Him be glory forever and ever. 
That's what he does when he, when he sits down and he begins to think about the greatness of the Gospel. Now, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Here's a question. What happens when you read a fantastic book? When you read a book that you learn a lot out of or sort of inspires you, you want to share that book with everybody else. What happens when you eat a delicious meal? You want to recommend the recipe or you, you, know, you put it there on Pinterest or you talk about the great restaurant. Or what happens when you see a, you know, a beautiful piece of scenery? Well, one of the things you do is you take a selfie of yourself and you post it on Facebook to say, look at me in this fantastic place. The answer is when you see it, you praise. There's praise that comes up out of your heart and out of your soul that says, I am in a place where I perceive something that is, is just full of wonder and full of awe. When, when you behold something that's beautiful and awesome, the enjoyment of it, the wonderment of it spontaneously overflows into praise, and the only reason it doesn't is because we deliberately put the brakes on that. What happens when you see a beautiful child for the first time? A baby? What, what happens when, when we were singing that song, and I'm looking out over this, this congregation, we're singing that song, and we go into that chorus, Hallelujah. There's just something about beauty that is not complete until it, 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 uh, we, we've communicated it and expressed it. It's here that I think C.S. Lewis helps us to understand how just important this is. He writes in this little book he wrote on the reflections of the Psalms, he says, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. What Lewis is saying is that when we perceive or we recognize greatness, and I'm talking about true greatness, or we, we recognize or we behold beauty, and I'm talking about true beauty, what is truly healthy and proper is to express it and to express it to others. That's why, for instance, in the Psalms, when people get an eye full of God and a heart full of God and a soul full of God, what is it that they always say or write to everyone that will read or listen to them? Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. I'll praise God. His praise will always, always, always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us, all of us, exalt His name together. And so Paul writes at the beginning of Romans chapter 12 when we recognize the greatness of the Gospel, the beauty of God's compassion, the inexplicable love of God to make it so, then the logical thing to do is to worship. It is to praise. But here's the thing. The word for worship here in chapter 12 verse 1 is bigger than just what we do on Sundays. The word that Paul uses here is a word that also means service which kind of brings us to that second point, which is the scope of worship. And this is where Paul says, you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, we, we don't have to be academics to understand when we read that, even in a very quick or cursory reading, that the language here is obviously that of sacrifice. But here's the question. What kind of sacrifice? When you read the Bible, especially Leviticus and the Old Testament, there are sacrifices and all kinds of sacrifices all over the place. What kind of sacrifice is Paul talking about? 
Well, personally, I don't think that Paul is referring to a sin offering because he's just spent the last 11 chapters writing about the forgiveness that comes to human beings through faith in Christ Jesus. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, as a way of reminder, that God presented Christ as a what? He presented Christ as what, church? As a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. I think the reference here is to what was known as a whole burnt offering, which was something that you gave or something that you sacrificed that was precious to you or beautiful to you or expensive in order to express consecration or to express devotion and commitment to God. The only difference is that now, because of Christ and in light of Christ, you don't give God something else to show devotion You give yourself, all of yourself, to show devotion to God. And here is where the whole worship thing gets bigger than just what we do on Sunday mornings, like what we've done this morning. The reference to body means everything about you. Have you ever tried to live outside of your body or tried to live without your body? It's impossible. Where your body is, that's where you are. And wherever you seem to be, your body's there with you. It's the totality of you. Wherever your body goes in this life, there all of you goes at the same time. To be a living sacrifice means that you are fully at God's disposal in all the areas of life that you encounter, that you experience. And the thing is, is that as much as God wants the, 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 the corporate, spiritually, inner life, expressive worship and praise that we do together, God wants something even more so than that. Now, a slight shift here. A question that's so simple, you know, nearly insults the intelligence, but here it goes. What's the difference between the first year wedding anniversary and the 50 year wedding anniversary? 49 years. 49 years of awe in the discovery of how much you are loved. And as you discover over those years, beginning with that that, that first year, as you discover how much you are loved and cherished and sacrificed for and served, you begin to sense that you want to live a life that's worthy of all of that. You begin to want to live more and more in a way that makes a big deal out of that spouse. And it's it's not just in the presence of that spouse, right? Is there anything more deceitful and disgusting than a husband who only acts married in the presence of his wife? Or a wife who doesn't let you know that she's a wife. Listen, what, what you are called to do in those vows that you make before witnesses in a wedding is to be married in the totality of your life to that person that is standing next to you. And the same is true when you, when you become a part of God's family. When you become a son or a daughter of God, what that means is that everywhere you go, you carry the dignity of your baptism and of the cross and of God's grace and His kindness to you. You carry the dignity of that in your words and actions and attitudes wherever you go. 
That's what it means to be a person of faith. In all your actions, in all your words, in all your attitudes, you reflect the greatness of God's Gospel in your life. To be a living sacrifice means that you die to self. What is it that Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 14? You cannot be my disciple unless you what? Pick up your cross, which means die to self, and follow me. Which, getting back to the logic of it, that only makes sense in light of the fact that God died for you. And then the last thing we'll look at this morning is the right motivation. It's in view of God's mercy that Paul urges them to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is that true and proper, that logical worship. Motivation is sort of an interesting thing, is it not? I mean, how many billions of dollars do we pay every year in this country alone just to have somebody come and to make us feel good about uh, ourselves when maybe we shouldn't and to get inspired and get motivated to go do something that we're probably not capable of doing? There's an old story that is told of a military induction officer who was having this really high success rate convincing new recruits to purchase GI life insurance, uh, a government-issued life insurance. And his superior officer was really curious about his success rate, so one day he decided to listen to his pitch, and this is what he heard the guy telling all of these new recruits. He, he told these guys, if you're killed in a battle and have GI insurance... The government has to pay your beneficiaries $200,000. If you don't have this insurance, they're only going to pay them about a few thousand dollars at the most. So who do you think they're going to send into battle first? You know, fear is a pretty popular motivational tool in the world that we live in, is it not? But people who are motivated by fear are not very joy-filled, are they? Most of the time when you run across somebody that is everything that they, they do is motivated, motivated by fear, do they not come across as a little exhausted emotionally? Fear makes repentance a bitter experience. I mean, if you, if you don't know that you're saved and the only reason that you're doing anything good or trying to do anything righteous with your life is, is out of fear that you're going to be sent to a place that you don't want to go. You never know really where that or you're never, never really comfortable with where that line is. And so you never ever really want to admit the, the fact that you made a mistake. Fear makes enduring the tough times a little bit difficult, right? I mean, it's difficult to, to be legalistic and to think that, you know, the only way that I'm ever going to make it into God's heaven is if I do all of this stuff right. That's legalism. It makes going through even tougher times with that legalistic heart and mindset and soul, it makes it even more difficult. And all of you parents know that, you know, if fear is the only motivational tool that you have to get your kids to do the right thing, what happens when that fear is gone? What happens when you're no longer afraid, then the motivation is, is, is gone? I think it's important to see that the motivation for the Christian is not fear that he will lose his salvation. Why? He's already told us nothing, what? Separates us. From the love of God. 
It's important to see that the motivation for the Christian is not fear that he will lose his salvation, but it's to live a life worthy of all of that mercy he has been shown. I don't deserve any of it. But I'm given it anyway. It's a gift of God's grace. In God's mercy, there is forgiveness and kindness and love given to people who most desperately need it. You know, and this is not the only problem that uh, of, of fear being a motivation or the wrong, the, the, the wrong uh, motivation compelling people to, to live a certain kind of a life. I mean, John dealt with the same thing that Paul is dealing with with the Romans. John's dealing with people that are trying to figure it out as well. And one of the things that he says towards the end of that first letter is that, you know, there is no fear in love. Why is it that you can get angry with your kids and they can be upset and they can feel really terrible that they've they've disappointed you somehow, they've, they've transgressed, you know, crossed a line that was drawn in the sand, How come they can be so upset but not fear that they are no longer loved? There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You know, I can't help but think the more that the gospel gets inside of us, the more pervasive its effects will be on our church. The joy of grace will infect our worship. The humility induced by grace will become contagious in service throughout not just our church family, but the community. The generosity that imitates grace will make us rich in all things. The love that reflects grace will open our hearts to all people. The peace of God, born of grace, will see us through all our days, come what may. Because we have realized, like Paul, that the Gospel changes everything. And for us, the Gospel is everything. I'm going to give you an opportunity to praise God right now. We're going to sing uh, 96, I Stand in Awe, because it is, it is, it's not just a great song, but it's a song that reflects the, 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 the spirit of worship and, and what is overflowing in our hearts when we get an eyeful and a heartful and a mindful and a soulful of, of God and His grace and the gospel and all of that love and all of that compassion, that mercy, the free gift that comes to us, that, that, that provision of peace and joy every day. That regardless of what comes to us, regardless of whether or not we have a lot of money in our pockets or not, whether or not we find ourselves in good health or in, in, in not so great health, whether we find ourselves strong or weak, we praise God because of the great power that has come to bear in our life that has dragged us out of a kingdom of darkness and blessed us with a kingdom of light. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there's some ways that we can minister to you through prayer or through sharing uh, what the Gospel is all about in terms of a response to to the cross of Jesus so that you become a child of God. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.
You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. 